I have a wonderful electronic invention I want you to see. see? It, it looks something like this. Hello and welcome to the Football Media Podcast. I'm your host, John McKenzie, and I'm joined by Matt Murphy, assistant video editor and football writer at The Independent. Matt, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. I'm a little bit nervous about the uh, Leeds United playoff fixtures coming up. but Yeah, uh, are you a Leeds United fan, John? I, I never <laughs> suspected that from your team. Well, we'll see how much longer that lasts. Um, if, if we lose to Frank Lampard's Derby County, then, then maybe... Uh, no, I would never switch allegiances. <laughs> <laughs> This week, John spoke to Jonathan Harding, a freelance journalist at Deutsche Welle, about working as an English language journalist in a foreign country and his experiences of writing a book, Mensch, which explores the ideas central to Germany's football cultures. But before that, Matt and I are going to cover some of the important news stories from the week in the football media. Matt, you want to kick off with something about the Lionesses World Cup squad announcements on social media? Yes. So yesterday, the England's uh, Women's World Cup squad were announced, uh, or the Lionesses, as they're called. Uh, they did it in a in a kind of different way. Although, like the FA and, and England in general have tried these kind of new and interesting ways of announcing squads. They did it for like um, they did it for the Men's World Cup, and they did it for um, some of the younger squads, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. But they've not done it this way before, in, to, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, of getting all these celebrities to post videos for each player saying that they were announced. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a unique way of doing it. Um, there, there were all different types of celebrities from from David Beckham and, um, you know, to James Corden and uh, and, and a variety of other um, female celebrities like Anne-Marie, Anne the, the singer, and, um, and, and many others. But I think it's... You know, from, from my view on this, I think I think it's it's really interesting. You know that they're trying to get as many celebrities to push the women's game, and everyone's got um, all of all of them have quite a big social media outreach. Um, but as you you know, you and I discussed this. It, 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 there's a it did have a kind of kind of pat, slightly patronising undertone to it mm-hmm. for me anyway. But I don't know. What, what do you think about it? Yeah, I guess it's, it's it's one of those tricky situations, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you want to come out and be positive and say, yeah, it's good that this exposure is happening. And one of the, the uh, genius things about this idea is the fact that they are um, spreading out the 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 reach of this of this announcement to as many different people as possible i mean james corden has i think millions of followers on twitter and so you're giving the game a huge amount of exposure and that that is good but i do i do kind of agree with you that you know the way that these guys have come across has maybe been a little bit patronizing it's it's sort of like an award ceremony at, at a primary school or something when you're like well done guys really good job um and a lot of a lot of a lot of people saying oh, you know, we're all behind you and stuff like that, which, and I guess the point of comparison that we mentioned was like, would you expect this in the men's game? Now, that isn't to say that the men's game should necessarily always be the gold standard of how you should deal with these things. And maybe the men's game has a lot to learn about the, the way the FA and the Lionesses in general have, have marketed themselves. But it does feel a little bit as as though it's not it's not as serious as, as some of those, uh, some of the, 
takes that the, the men's team goes through as well, where there's just an acceptance that this is the way that things will be done. You got on the squad, well done. That's an achievement in and of itself. You don't need to make it into a huge thing. There's definitely two sides to it. I mean, taking uh, taking a step back, of course, you know, this is this is two two men talking about this the point of women's football, but hmm. um, but at the same time, it you've you've got to admit that um, it, it, it's a good thing that more people are talking about it, more people are seeing it, and it's another like had it just been a simple announcement of here's the squad it wouldn't have got the push that a lot of media outlets a lot of um people have tried to drum up support for the game so it is a good thing and i I think i think overall it, it, it might have just been worth maybe them taking some some time to think about the way they do it because if it if it if it's someone sitting there going you know, this is great, you know, sat in front of their, their camera being filmed and saying, come on, England, that kind of thing. It, it, it's nice. It's positive. But at the same time, yeah, as you were saying, it's just it's just slightly it, it's a slight kind of pat on the head mm. <laughs> approach to it. And uh, rather than, you know, than, than, than something that's trying to push something. Yeah, I guess the the other interesting question to then ask is, do we think that we'll see this sort of marketing being done elsewhere in the world of football media? Yeah, that's that, that is a good question. I, I, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you definitely wouldn't see something. I mean, you may see something like that in in the men's game eventually uh, to try and balance it out, maybe. But um, I think in areas where that that will try and uh, gain support, that there will that they may adopt something like this. You never know. There is, um, you know, various other sports are trying to trying to get this you, you get you, you get uh, the likes of uh, baseball and and uh, an american sports that are trying to make it over in, in the uk that try and, and have the endorsement of of certain celebrities over here to try and push that market to to the uk but i don't know, know necessarily whether that would happen football hmm. and now for something completely different i wanted to talk a little bit about vice there's there's a jobs boost at vice at the moment this may seem a little bit left field when it comes to sport but you'll remember that vice sports was was a fairly big department at one point before they um, suffered from the pivot to video and let a few of them go but so after a year-long hiring slowdown um has seen employees employments go from 80 to just 18 vice appears to be turning things around thanks to a 250 million dollar investment from george soros and other investors who are hoping to help turn the company around The company's added roughly 50 new openings in early May, and um, there are early signs that the company is is going through something of a reinvention. So from the looks of things, the first move to the company is to bring in some new talent who are going to be doing the things that Vice needs to do most, which is develop new, compelling, on-brand content that gets the media company back into circulation. It does look as though a lot of this is being aimed towards the political news side of things. So the job listings include searches for a political editor and also something I found quite interesting, uh, authoritarianism reporter and breaking news editor. So it looks like they're going to go in heavy on the 2020 elections uh, in America. But I guess for me, the question is, do we think that this will see something like the return of Vice Sports? I think outlets like Vice moving towards sports are quite actu- actually quite important for the media industry because I think so often the the industry is dominated by outlets who are sort of uh, subsections of, of, of newspaper outlets in general or uh, can be very um, insular in the sense that they report news in the traditional way. So it's good to see um, outlets like Vice uh, moving into sports. So that's just something to keep an eye on. Have you got any thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I mean, Vice was um, what originally got me into and interested in journalism, and I actually did mm. an internship at Vice um, cool. about six years ago. Um, and at the time, they hadn't launched Vice, Vice Sports, and I was pitching loads of different football stories, and they very rarely did um, much, um, many kind of interesting uh, kind of, they couldn't really find an, an, an angle. There weren't many, many things that they, they seemed to talk about on the mm. normal kind of Vice and UK Vice um, websites. Um, but they, they did branch out a little bit with Vice Sports. And I think that is important because you know, they did they did some really interesting features on on the old firm Derby up in Scotland mm-hmm. um, and, and things like that. And, and as you say, it's it's important to take an alternative look at things. And I think there's some, there's some incredibly creative minds at Vice yeah. and some really, really funny and interesting stories that they that they put up that, that people really do need, even just people within the media like um you and my, myself to kind of look at things and go ah oh, we didn't even think of looking at it that way um and they they do that across a variating um across a varying level of um of topics including sports so i that as you say it's important and um it would be nice to see the return of it mm, yeah do you want to go go on to talk a little bit just a, just a, a little summary of of the copper 90 debacle yeah so um you know me and you were I think we were discussing this on, on the, my previous uh, appearance on, on the podcast, but um, after some social media posts uh, that came to light showing a poet, one of the presenters at COP90, uh, to have fairly uh, misogynistic views, uh, even within the last couple of years, COP90 uh, had suspended him uh, pending some internal hearings. Um, this, you know, it kind of flies in the face of the company's announcement that they wanted to treat women's football with more gravitas. Um, it also led to them with the, instead of making any kind of official statement, they would reply to people's tweets with a mm. kind of mini statement. It was a very strange um, kind of response from the company overall, but they just, um, they had, they had, I think, um, to, you know, they had suspended him and, and it, we were waiting for that to happen. Um, but he's now been reinstant, reinstated um, or will be at the end of uh, next, at the beginning of next season. Um, you know, after the uh, Women's World Cup is over and done with, which is which is quite ironic. Um, but yeah, I think on a, on a serious note, they 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 haven't said anything because as a company, you know, it, it is positive that of what they were trying to do of trying to push women's football, but they were doing it in a very kind of um, self righteous, um, sanctimonious kind of way. And and the irony being that behind all that, they didn't even think to look at their own past and the people that are there now. Um, and they've not actually even addressed that properly. They've just they've just suspended suspended one person who's now come back. So I, I it's it's a bit upsetting to think that that Copper ninety haven't done more to to kind of say that they're really addressing the problems because that isn't solving anything really it's it's just saying look oh look we're dealing with it someone's dealing with someone who's who's posted some some tweets is not is not dealing with the underlying problems within society which create um you know you know help perpetuate sexism i ironically use the word perpetuate as poet did in their release video mm. um but yeah i i don't know if you if you've got something to add john yeah i, do, I mean again we don't want to labor this point because it feels like we talk about them every week at the moment um but it, it for me it's that it's the fact that they're just happy to reinstate him 
um, just before next season. So it's sort of they're trying to get the best of both worlds. And the question is whether or not that really works. If you can go down that route of being authentic, uh, fan, uh, an authentic fan media site, you can't just sort of play fast and loose with with the fans and try and keep all of them happy. The fan bases are uh, extensive and complex things. And there will be, as we've seen, I think, from some of the reaction to this, there will be some fans who will back Poets of the Hill and will reiterate some of the views that he's held but the majority of the the fan base that they're now trying to reach in women's football will find those views abhorrent um, and the question is like what gives which 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 one which one of those groups do you actually really want to approach you can't have both of them it feels or if you do you have to go out of your way to make sure that you are uh, spreading the right message to those people or at least trying to be corrective in some sense so uh, yeah we'll wait and see how this all unfolds and and I I suspect it will all go under the radar um in the next few months but uh, these that's the way that these things thing, these things happen but we, we should move on I wanted to talk a bit about some data that was released this week by Parsley the media data analysts um, they released some data on social media platform behavior which actually found quite interesting because what they did is they went through each of the various social media platforms and looked at the way that they tend to push referrals so when it comes to traffic referrals for media companies certain topics and behaviors do take off on some platforms and fall flat on others. So politics, for example, is the number one show in town on Facebook, Twitter and Reddit, but it tends to get smothered in visually heavy platforms like Instagram or Pinterest. The majority of traffic referrals to online media companies isn't from direct sources. So the majority of people working in the media will be getting their referrals from social media platforms. So it's critical for publishers to understand what platforms are most likely to elevate specific topics. So I've got the breakdown here of Facebook, Google, Instagram, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and Reddit. And in, for the purposes of football media, interestingly enough, Twitter is, is the big platform to go to. Now, obviously, that's probably not that surprising for us. I think the, the majority of us in football media will be he- heavily active on Twitter. Uh, but the list that it gives us for Twitter is law, government, politics, sports, tech, and computing, football in particular, and science. Uh, football and sport do not appear on any of the others. So Facebook, Google, Instagram, Pinterest, and Reddit, which surprised me a little bit with Reddit. But the data suggests that the core function of each platform elevates certain topics because of the native format and the reasons users visit the platform so obviously on Instagram the camera is a central format which changes things for the football media now that isn't to say that Instagram wouldn't be open to to being one of those main referrers for football but it's clear that the football media as as is is not using Instagram in the right way and so I guess the the questions that we're going to start asking I think in the comments here is is it the case that as football media people that we we tend to be a little bit small C conservative about things like social media platforms and we see what works on social media platforms and we go with that. So if we're doing football stuff, we see that things do well on Twitter. So we then um, angle all of our football stuff towards that when there there is a chance. And we've seen, there's obviously lots of people doing good stuff on Instagram, but I think in, in general, it, within the, the sort of mainstream, we we tend to not be able to do the, the, the Instagrams and Snapchats um, platforms quite so well so i don't know if you, you've you've clearly got lots of thoughts on this because you're doing a lot of stuff with video so that changes things for you so what's your are you surprised at these findings and, and what do you think um, this says about football media 
I think it, it yeah it's it's not surprising necessarily that that these aren't um that necessarily football media or media companies in general aren't taking so much to Instagram um because I've seen people try and do a new thing where they would share for example articles as images but then a link at the very end of it but it's because basically Facebook and Twitter are free platforms to essentially share your your media on and then you can promote them um whereas Instagram you have to do a lot of promoting uh, and it has to be very visual so with different media companies which are entirely visual that might work and and we've we've done well specifically independent we've we've done a a lot more on instagram um than we have uh when when i started for example three years ago uh but at the same time it's very difficult to see that because there aren't many options to take you away from instagram to Uh, a website so you can directly with one click with Facebook and Twitter but with Instagram there are very few places where you can actually do that Um, and so and also I think I find Instagram very unconventional because you can use Facebook and Twitter just well almost exactly the same way on a desktop whereas Instagram is very very phone centric Mm. and uh, and even though they're trying to bring IGTV into this um, I think that there needs to be a lot more development there before people can start having um, full-on video-centric pieces because you can't even scrub back on Instagram videos. You have to wait for them to play out unless it's on on TV. Um, So I think people have started putting stuff out now on Instagram. They've started putting out like mini documentaries and there's a series that Jamila Jamil's done on on Instagram that that she started. So um, I'm sure other people have I've done as well but like I think it'll take some time but I do actually think that because a lot of younger people are using Instagram that they that 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 is is very much a hub of the future it's just a question of how uh, media companies uh, will adapt to using it mm. Elsewhere in the media news this week, the Football Blogging Awards are having their ceremony t- this evening, actually, uh, in an event which sees the Football Media Podcast's own Alex Stewart represent his employee TIFO Football, so congratulations to them. Keep an eye out on uh, various social medias and you'll see that going through tonight. Google search is getting an upgrade with better news coverage and now podcast indexing. Uh, again, we've talked about this in the last few weeks about how smart speakers may may change the podcasting market and Google seems to be responding to that by changing their algorithms. According to recent estimates from Merkel, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, experienced a 114% increase in web referrals over the course of last year. So there's another thing which adds to that notion that Instagram could become quite important for football media outlets. Big news in the publication industry, Advanced Publications Inc., owner of Condé Nast magazine Empire and Metropolitan Newspapers is on a $10 billion global shopping spree intended to diversify the company away from its traditional media holdings and reduce its reliance on advertising revenue, which is a topic we're always talking about, how do uh, media companies survive in an advertising revenue age? And the answer to that seems to be move elsewhere. So the Newhouse family-owned company has already spent roughly $3 billion on various ventures as part of that effort, acquiring a group of European theatres, a maker of plagiarism detection software, a majority stake in an esports analytics firm, and a stake in a rocket operator specialising in low-Earth orbit satellite launches. So if you're in the media industry, then maybe you should you should be looking much further afield than, than simply publication industry. And finally, congratulations to the Media Voices podcast, which celebrated 100 episodes this week. Uh, without Media Voices podcast, it's unlikely the Football Media podcast would even exist. So here is to the next 100 episodes. But that very much brings us to a close today. Um, Matt, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you.
We're now going to go to my interview with John Harding just after this. I'm joined today by John Harding, journalist at Deutsche Welle. Are you still at Deutsche Welle? I am, yeah. correct. Yep. We're here in a very rainy Manchester. You picked a really good day for it. <laughs> uh, how are you doing, John? I'm doing well, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Good. Obviously, this is a football media podcast. I'm, I'm really interested to hear about how you got into football journalism, uh, particularly because you are an Englishman, not in New York, but in, in, in Bonn in Germany. I'm interested to, see, to, to know how it was that you, you made that switch, because one of the things that you talk about in the book that we're eventually going to um, go on to talk about is how you, you look at um, youngsters from the UK who go over to the German uh, Football League and, and apply their trade, learn their craft there. Um, so I'm interested to hear what, what it's like to do that as, as a journalist, but... Start from the beginning, I guess. Start from the beginning. Well, um, it was a quite a long story. I mean, I guess I'll keep it relatively brief, but I was fortunate enough as a young child to, to live in different countries. My father is headmaster of international schools. So we moved around a lot as kids and uh, my brother and I. And, you know, that meant I was exposed to language and different cultures from a very young age. And from the ages, oh, I was about eight or nine, I was in Austria. Uh, I was in Germany and Hamburg a little bit when I was younger. So I was always really around uh, German language culture from a very young age. Um, and after my parents divorced, I came to the UK and I studied German from the ages of 13 onwards, really, you know, 13, 14, um, studied German at university. I kept pursuing it. I did do French and Spanish at GCSE. I was the only kid who wanted to do all three languages. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed other languages and that's how it came about really. In my last year at uni, I started watching more German football, 2011, 2012, and I started writing blogs when blogs were, were a thing. Um, I just wrote on a page about what I thought about what was going on in football in Germany. And after I'd done most of the work in my final year, I sent off an email or two about a potential position and I ended up getting a, um, an internship in Munich straight after my degree was finished. And I worked there for 18 months. Uh, it was really difficult work. Um, I was working a lot of hours for not very much money, but it was the best possible start. I was exposed to a lot of things. Munich is a good city. That was at the time when Bayern were really good. Also a lot of fun to watch, um, that treble winning season. And after 18 months, I said, I've had enough. And I, I moved back to England, actually, with the intention of moving to Manchester, but not really sure about what I was going to do. And then um, Deutsche Welle gave me a call. Uh, that was just before the 2014 World Cup and and things worked out. And, and here I am. Mm. So how does it work with, with Deutsche Welle? What, what's your, your sort of job? I'm, role a, and- I'm a freelancer there, okay. um, but I, I work uh, on a shift basis. So I, you know, I get the opportunity to go in and, and write articles and, and work in, in the office. And the offices, is that in Bonn? Yeah, there are yeah. two offices, there's one in Berlin and one in Bonn. So. Okay, and so what, what your your uh, weekly sort of output, is it is it fairly set? Do you have a good idea what you're going to do a week before you do it? It's hard to know. I mean, a lot of it depends on, on the action and, and the plan that we have going into the week. A lot of it's built around, you know, are we doing an interview this week? Have we got things organised for that? Are we doing previews? What are we doing? We, we try to do a lot of investigative pieces in terms of, uh, you know, some great work by my colleagues like uh, Felix Tamza or Matt Ford, who've done some really interesting pieces on fan culture, for example. Mm. Um, I had a really fantastic experience when I was in Osnabrück a few months ago, speaking to Daniel Thun, the head coach there, third division team in Germany, who just won promotion 
you know, talking about some issues in, in football, in German football that are around the action on the pitch, maybe not directly involved in that. And I think that's the kind of approach that we want to take as a team. So it can vary from week to week, but that's kind of the basis. And are you working in German language mostly or are you doing a lot of stuff in English? Most well? of the stuff I do is in English. I have done a couple of pieces in German before. Um, I speak fluent German. My written German is is good, but I think there's enough people out there who write to a high enough standard that I wouldn't throw myself in that okay. into that ring. And so who are Deutsche Welle aiming for then? What's their, what's their sort of prime market? Well, it's difficult really. I mean, I, I think what we're trying to do is to give people the kind of uh, opinions and, and information that you might not be able to get elsewhere. Um, you know, with, we've got a really good team at Deutsche Welle. I, I really enjoy working with the group that I work with. There are some guys in this team who are really, I sound like a footballer now, but who, who are really... <laughs> just pleased for the three points. Yeah, just pleased for the three points, doing what the manager says. <laughs> no, I, I'm really happy with the the group that I work with because I think we, we work really well together. And uh, in terms of an audience, I think what we're trying to do is just bring relevant topics to light that that don't necessarily get the time or the headlines. You know, I think it's important that you hear both sides of a story or it's not just, it's not just black and white. I feel like so much of dialogue around football these days is lacking in nuance. Mm. There's not enough space for uh, a complex conversation. You know, things are not always wrong, right, left, right, black or white, you know, um, yes or no. And I think that's what's so frustrating. Mm. Uh, I think you've got to try and find the fine line somewhere in between there. But I think sometimes it, it is a complex conversation or there, there is a complex conversation to be had. Mm. And in terms of your audience, would you say that you're, you are aiming at a German market or is it is it English-speaking market? No, it's definitely or? an English-speaking market. Okay. I mean, the group, we we all write in English. Uh, we're aiming for, for English-speaking countries for sure. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to, I guess, move on from there to... Well, let's let's talk a little bit about um, German football. I think it's so we, it's so easy to fall into mindset that you know football. Everyone says like, yeah, football is a universal language, whatever. But obviously, um, very um, the the actual football markets themselves are very different depending on which country you're in. Uh, it's one of the things that was impressed upon me in reading your book, which we'll go on to talk about in a bit more detail. But in the first chapter of, of the book, um, it's all about your experiences of playing. Um, Within the, the the German the German pyramid, and I say the pyramid in in a very uh, uh, in in a very sensical way, in 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 terms of the fact that in Germany it very much is a pyramid, right? It's 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 set up so that you can start at the bottom and work your way to the top, Definitely. theoretically, right? Yeah. So so talk to us a little bit about that. Your experiences of the the differences of German football that have, have sort of have taken you outside of the the sort of English context that you you maybe grew up with. Well, it's funny. I did used to play in England for a club. Okay. In England, so it was a stark contrast. Um, I felt like the training was always far more, I think it's probably different now, and this is obviously only my experience, but it was far more intense in Germany. Uh, and I, I felt there was a, a great sense of camaraderie in the changing room. Um, there was certainly a higher level of expectation from a lower level of quality. So even if you were playing at the level I was playing at, you were training twice a week and there was an expectation that you would deliver mm. a decent performance on Sunday. I really enjoyed it. I think it's down to a personality, but I really enjoyed that that hard work and grind because I I felt even on a really basic level, if you can feel an improvement in what you're doing, whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's football, whether it's carpentry, whether it's music, if you notice that you're getting better at something, I think that can spark a really important feeling in the human being. Mm. And I I certainly noticed that more in Germany than I did in England. I It's hard to say. I mean, culturally... It does. It does reflect. Maybe there is a reflection of of culture in in football at that age. 
uh, it's hard for me to remember what it was really like at 13 yeah, in England because I wasn't thinking about it that much. But <laughs> as an older man, uh, or as a man and not a boy in Germany, <laughs> I certainly, I certainly felt under pressure a bit more. I think there's a higher level of expectation, but I enjoyed it and I, I, mm. I thrived under it a bit. Do you think there's there's more egalitarian? I mean, obviously we always we're always talking about German football, yeah. having that sort of sense of you know the fifty plus one rule yeah. and 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 this notion that that football is for the fans probably in a in a more meaningful way than it is in other football cultures. I certainly felt that. I mean, I played on my year abroad as well. I didn't write about that in the book actually, but I did play on my year abroad for a small town. Uh, played for the reserve team there, and I, there was certainly a sense that you were playing for that community. And you're talking on a very low level here, but even then, when the first team played, the second team turned up and we all supported yeah. them. The whole community came down. You got to know people in the community. And even as someone who had come from the outside, I was welcomed into that environment, you know. And, and they, you know, they loved that they had this random English guy who'd come on his year abroad and who wanted to play football. And mm-hmm. I was in training session for months on end, I mean, months and a month and a half. And I had, I'd sat on the bench. I hadn't played. They couldn't figure out where to play me. Like, he's really tall, but his touch isn't great. Do we put him up front? And in the end, they put me up front. It was funny because I've always been a defender, but they played me up front. And I'll never forget it because the first, my debut, uh, and this is for um, a team called Grunstadt, which is translated Greentown, um, which is brilliant. And I, I was on the bench and uh, my last, I came on for the last 10 minutes and I was thinking, brilliant, you know, finally here I am getting a chance. We were 3-0 up. The game was, you know, the manager was obviously willing to let me have a runaround, which is great. But my first touch was to lob the goalkeeper on the edge of the box and score and I'll, I'll never forget that because it was such a rewarding moment because the, everyone in the team was so happy yeah, and yeah. Uh, it, it felt great and I it was certainly a, a great sense of community from a from even from a lower from a lower standard but I, I that's not to say that that doesn't exist in England it's just that I experienced it very often in mm. Germany yeah, I mean, we were talking before we before we started recording about um, my experiences of Freiburg and Christian Streich, mm. um, and one of the things that I loved about Freiburg is that it's a it's a it's a city of two hundred thousand people, and there's twenty two thousand people in the at the game. Like that's one in ten people, yeah. and they're not coming. Like Freiburg is is entirely isolated at the bottom of, of Germany, yeah. and so one in ten people in that in that town are at the at the game pretty mm. much, and everyone was invested in in the results of that of, of the team um, in a way that I've just not experienced in 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 England at all, and so um, I, I found that I found that really fascinating. I think that for me, the sense was that that there is that egalitarianism. You're playing football on a Sunday, like you say, but you're part of uh, of a whole structure, a whole pyramidal structure of people playing at the same time, and you're all in it together. Yeah, and that's that's the great thing. I mean, the DFB have done not a brilliant job of of trying to market their their pro amateur game stance because they haven't really backed it up with great action yeah. they haven't done enough to support the amateur game i don't think but anybody who has ever been involved in the amateur game especially in germany knows that how special that is and that it does start there and it continues all the way up to teams like freiburg and i think that's what's interesting in the fact that if you look at managers like daniel farker daniel stendel these guys who've come over what is the main thing that people are talking about now, yes, their success, but their connection to those communities. Mm. I mean, Daniel Schneider was connected with with Barnsley. Look at the way that Daniel Farker has now put Norwich back on the map and restored a passion and faith there. And I think there's no 
there's no coincidence that they have come from a country where that is something that's not only taught in the coaching system, but also something that they've grown up experiencing as players, even at an amateur level. Yeah, I think this this does bring us nicely into the into the book itself. So, do you want to just give us a bit of an overview of, of the book and and maybe give it an, an angle of, of what you were thinking when you were what caused you to write the book in the first place? I read Living on the Volcano by Michael Calvin, and I loved it, and I thought. Nobody's written anything like this about German coaches. And yeah, as you said, everybody talks about German football and, and being some sort of blueprint. And I, I just had a, th- a thought, and I actually thought at the same time, it's getting harder and harder as a journalist to get stories out that I really feel are of great substance because access is very difficult. Um, clubs are not always easy uh, to, to get in, in communication with or to arrange an interview or, or to get inside information. And I took it upon myself to to sort of, it's a bit of a quest to try and tell the story of these coaches and to transport or transfer that culture. Um, yeah, it took me two years of traveling around the country and interviewing people and bringing it around on one central thread. And, and that was really a focus on what is it to coach in 2019 or 2017 when I started? What are the values that best highlight German coaching? And where does the game need to make a change? Uh, and really all three of those things come back to one thing and that's people mm. human values because i don't think enough is is said about that in the game and mm. i think i really wanted to write a book that wasn't just informative but also it's ambitious but that could that could change a culture because i truly believe that the culture does need to change mm. and i i want this to be the start of a conversation yeah, and we'll go on to talk about the book itself. But firstly, it's interesting that you should say you want to change the conversation. To what extent has it has it um, been touted in Germany, in particular? Is there are there people talking about this book? Is there an expectation that it's that it's going to do that? Well, I, a couple of people have said to me, "Well, you know, I'm really interested to read this," and uh, I was surprised to hear from from some of them. I, I think and I hope that in the next few weeks and months that will continue to build. Um, I know that there is always a fascination with someone who comes from outside to write about your own culture. Mm-hmm. I know that it would be the same for a, a lot of people living in another country if someone came from outside to write about English football. I'm, it's always the same. And I'm, I'm keen. I'm keen to see whether my interpretation of German culture and German football, based on how I've experienced it, is, is a reflection that they also see, that fellow German journalists or players see. But it's not as if you're just parachuting in here. You've, you've obviously no. you've spent a huge amount of time in Germany. You, like you say, you, your, your German language is good. You, you have a sense of what it means to live in those sorts of countries. So it's, it's not that you're, um, you're simply sort of coming in and, and I don't know, co- colonialising it <laughs> with English ideas. But no, I've, I've been here a long time, and uh, I feel very comfortable in the country. The country has an important place in my heart, uh, and a language is really important to me. It's uh, it, it has really bad press. I think it's a really beautiful language, and uh, it was really important to me to to get that across. And there's a lot of good. Uh, there are a lot of things to criticise about German football and German culture, but I think there are a lot of things that need to be highlighted as as being valuable as well. Mm. So let's talk about the structure of the book in particular. So there's what four, fourteen. Chapters. 14 chapters yeah uh, and each of them has a has a, a title in german which is um i, I guess a, a sort of concept um 
Um, and it, was, it goes from things like philosopher, language. No, it's not language isn't one, is it? But um, like innovator. Yeah. There's, there's quite a few of those. And in each chapter is sort of t- focuses on pretty much an individual or a couple of individuals. Yeah. Um, so tell us about the, the structure and why you decided to, to go about it that way. Is it, is it just in uh, homage to, to Michael Calvin again? Or is it- <laughs> no, uh, I, I hadn't even thought about that. But I like the way that he had written the book, less about the structure, but more about the way that he had phrased it, because I thought, and I think this is a continuous thing about his writing, it's very conscious of the people that he's talking about. Mm. And I really enjoy that. Uh, And I wanted to do the same thing. I didn't get the opportunity to speak to too many head coaches, but I actually think that was really beneficial for what I was trying to say, because I ended up talking to some of the people, most of the people who are really close to individuals and players and other coaches and I I really enjoyed I enjoyed doing that I think the reason I structured it the way that I did is because I wanted there to be a clear character trait um, for each section Mm. and each chapter is is a story of of one coach's experience or one player or a group of players experience based on that character trait and I think all of those are positives they are our lessons um, that I learned from or about doing this book and I thought it was the most digestible way to give light to those stories mm. and each one of the chapters ends with the sort of like key lessons learned yeah um why did you start did, did you did you decide to do that was there was there any i was inspired a bit by the um the idea in legacy by james kerr which is probably one of my top three sports books uh, it's a book about the all blacks and i i thought it, it it's makes sense in a book like this when you're talking about attributes and you're talking about characters and people, especially when you're listening to one or two people talk for a lot a long time, to come back to the key and core message of the chapter. And I just wanted to recap that because I think it's important that you can spend three thousand words saying one thing, but I think it's important that you show that at the same time it's possible to say the same thing in in mm. fifty. Mm. And I wanted to come back to that at the end. Yeah, and I guess one of the things that I was really interested in when I was reading the book is one of the things is it's just it feels so up to date. Like there's 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 that's st- nice to hear. It's taking a lot of editing. Yeah, I was going to say there's there's stuff that's that's in there. Obviously, the the World Cup um, embarrassment for for Germany is a is a big part of that. Um, so um, you're you're you, like you said you've you've done a lot of edit, editing on that. But uh, to, to what extent did did that World Cup result change the way you were thinking about the book? I was horrified (laughs) initially i'd written the book with the intention of uh highlighting all of the positives um and it was a bit of a surprise uh for the book it wasn't a surprise the results because i was expected i was expecting germany to do dreadfully based on their preparation Mm. um but in the end it worked out perfectly because you do need to show that even the greatest systems have their their failings and their issues Mm. and and this was the perfect example of that so it was it was difficult. It required a lot of editing, particularly in that right. chapter. That chapter was about the coaching conferences that I went to in Dresden and Bochum, and that required a lot of work to get to get it to where it is now. But I think, and I hope, and I'm glad that you say that that um, the book benefits from it because you it's important to see that you know not all that glitters is gold, and you do you do have issues there. Yeah. Well, c- because for me, I guess it, it, it could have ended in, in like twenty, or could have been focused around twenty seventeen. Yeah. But the fact that it has it has the twenty eighteen World Cup in there um, actually does it. It does change a lot, and I think it, it does add a lot. But you've, you've mentioned those those conferences that you went to, mm. the coaching ones. Um, and for me, that that chapter 
was was really fascinating. That and the one before it with uh, Frank Vormut. Vormut, yeah. Yeah, um, where you go really in depth on what's actually happening behind the scenes in the DFB um, and and you talk through this sort of self-conscious conversation that is going on in in the German football world. Um, Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I think it's something that we don't really see in in the UK. it feels as though there's 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 a, a kind of folding over of German life and football, where the, there's a sense in which the way that football is done reflects on Germany as a country, which I don't think is quite the same as it is here. Where I think we, here in England, there's always been this ability to sort of say, well, you know, the football team's over there, and there's louts and hooligans, and and there was obviously an attempt to get over that in 2018, and there's this um, these ideas of, oh, here we go, we've finally got a multicultural football team that we can start being proud of, uh, but within with Germany, they've, they've never really had to differentiate in quite that in quite that sense. So I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts there. The way that, that football sort of is, it, it seems so intrinsically German in that sense. Well, 2018, I think, broke a lot of the promises that were made in 2014. 2014, Germany were the team of integration. Mesut Ozil was held up as the leader and the, the you know the wondrous player of that team. And, and four years later, it, the total opposite is true. Um, the DFB, I think, their biggest problem was that they got lazy. And I think they suffered from being successful and not planning for what comes after success. And the greatest teams in all sport always have a contingency plan for what happens after you win. Winning should not be the summit. It should be somewhere along the way. The summit is never something that you actually reach because if you reach it, then you're finished. Mm. And I think Germany's mistake was to think that 2014 was the end when it should have been the start of something else. 2016, they played reasonably well in France. They were unlucky in the semi-finals, but I think that was the point where Love really should have walked away, if not in 2014. And all of it stems from there. It stems from Love not walking away. It stems from the DFB not having a plan for his successor because it changes the way that German football perceives itself, I think. Um, that's had an effect on on a lot of things. The national team is probably top three exports from German culture, German life. And in 2014 and 15, the way that football was suddenly being viewed from other countries, and working at DW gave me great exposure to this, suddenly the interest in the national team was going through the roof because they were world champions. The way that they were playing football, everyone saw that as a blueprint. The Bundesliga young players coming through. Everything about German football in 2013, 14, 15, suddenly everyone was interested in. And in 17, 18, 19, it couldn't have been more different. And that's also an interesting reflection, I think, on how German culture has stagnated a bit. I mean, they didn't have a government for six months. And and yet nobody said anything. There was no uproar about it. And I thought that was very interesting. But in the same reflect or in the same aspect, you know, you've got the national team, I mean, the same head coach. And everyone sort of says, oh, OK, well, he's staying on. You know, and, and instantly after Russia to say that Lerv was the right man to continue, you give him a, a massive contract just before then. There were so many missteps. And, you know, Matthias Sammer said at this conference, and he is really someone that I have a lot of respect for. He seems like the smartest man in any room I've ever been in. That really there needs to be more football competence at the higher levels of the DFB. But they also need to improve the structure around the coach. The coach is an important part, maybe the most integral part of the system, but he is not the system alone. And I think the problem with Lerv was that he was. He was given free reign and no one in the room had the feeling that they had the authority to challenge him. 
So here he is basically able to make his own decisions. He admitted afterwards, you know, I was arrogant, I made mistakes, but it's one thing to admit it. I take my hat off to that. But it's another to say that you're going to continue and that you still think after all this time that you're the right man. I don't I don't know. I think there are a lot of a lot of problems that Russia caused. Uh, I think German football suffered generally from that as well. Um but I thought that was a very interesting mirroring. You know, you're asking about whether German culture was seen in mm. a different light. I think it was. I think the Urzel problem was huge. It caused a huge conversation and debate about integration, what it meant to be German. Mm. What is it to be German? Those questions were were asked in a different light in 2014. Uh, and in 2018, I think they were asked with a bit more, maybe not aggression, but power behind them. And I think that's a... That's something that goes beyond football. There was a ripple effect there that was beyond sport. Yeah. And I guess so much of this comes down to it's it, these questions become more powerful when you're not winning, right? And, and I guess the same could be true in the UK. I think we made this huge thing of having this, and it happened in France as well, let's not forget the, the 98 teams and the teams around that era where everyone was going, yes, look, this is a real victory for multiculturalism. And then as soon as things go wrong, then everyone realises actually, you know what, it was, it was just froth and bubble on the surface. And that's my issue with it because I think this is, part of a wider conversation but just briefly because I think it's it's relevant I don't think sport can make this uh, differentiation anymore what you do as a person and how you are as a person is more important or it should be than how talented you are I think sport needs to get away from saying this is their talent and this excuses or hides all of the other things in their life and just because it was successful here on the pitch doesn't mean we can only applaud or congratulate those issues when we're winning. Mm. Um, you know, Germany's team of 2014 deserves praise for what it did in unifying and really highlighting integration for what it can do. But because we're four years later and they weren't successful, that doesn't mean we now need to have a negative conversation about mm. integration. And I think that's the problem. We shouldn't be related. We shouldn't be focused on the results. We should really be focused on what the impact of that has on culture. And I, I think culture has the opportunity in this instance to say, no, look, okay, we didn't do very well on the pitch. But this team is still made up of people who still represent a country that is aware of its multiculturalism and are okay with it. Mm. Um, and of course, the interesting part about 2018 is that it did reflect a country that I think was was largely indifferent about integration because of Merkel's decision to to let so many people in. You know, and I think there was division there. But sport cannot allow, I don't think, and I think this is its biggest failing. We see it in so many leagues, so many sports. The NFL is my biggest bugbear for this. Because I'm an American football fan, but I have no time for the way that that league runs. Because they continually allow talent to excuse unacceptable or even illegal behaviour. And I don't think we can do that. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So here's the question then. Why is it that that sort of conversation seems to be able to happen at the level of the Bundesliga, but it's not happening at the national level? Is 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 it simply that nationalism confuses the waters a little bit there? I think it's just because German football fans the national team football fans are a completely different beast to a, a league, uh, a club fan. Mm. Um, Bundesliga club fans are extremely engaged. They are very proactive on social issues. They care, but that's also because in turn, they are cared for by their clubs. Uh, and I think that would be the greatest loss to German culture if that was put aside for greater investors in an attempt to compete more and win more Champions Leagues. There is a lot of value in what Germany has. The national team doesn't have that connection. And everybody I've spoken to in Germany who is a German national team fan will say, yeah, I like them, I watch them, but there's no 
real passion there. Mm. I think there's a totally different connection. And I think the DFB is partly to blame for taking that connection for granted four years ago and assuming that it would just continue irrespective of results. Because the national team, I think, have also distanced themselves from the German culture, uh, German people. And that has made football culture on a national team level very, very difficult to be accessible. Yeah. It's not tangible anymore for people, I don't think. I just, it's just a different, different kettle of fish. So do, do you think that the, the, the regular Bewley fans are less likely to, to care about international football then? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I wasn't expecting that at I all. I think most Bundesliga fans, they care about Cologne, they care about Bremen, they care about Dortmund, they care about their team. Uh, and I, honestly, this is not for everybody, obviously, uh, and I am not. don't want to make any blanket suggestions here, but I would say that most, more often than not, Bundesliga fans would be more invested, interested in their club mm. than in the national team. I suspect the same is sort of roughly true in the UK, though, maybe with, with uh, England. Uh, maybe, I don't know. I felt like in 2018, I mean, I don't know how you felt, but in 2018, I suddenly felt with Southgate, the first time we've had someone in a long time who really made me feel like we had someone in charge of this team who was the right man at the yeah. right time. And he says the right things very often. Yeah. Um, I felt there was a slight difference there. I feel like some people who might not have been so vocal about being England fans were vocal that yeah, summer. Yeah, sure. I guess the difference is, is that um, there's a, that you get the country as a whole sort of motivates behind the England team when that sort of thing happens. So you have a lot of people who don't usually follow football um, jumping on, on That's true, bandwagons. Yeah. That still happens in Germany. Right. It does, but yeah. I think there's more of a connection. I mean, 2006 was such a marquee moment for German football internationally. You could hold your flag outside. It was okay again to be so vocal about being being German, being mm. proud to be German. That was such a huge moment when they hosted the World Cup. And I think that's definitely changed things for people. But I think the way the national team has been in the last few years, in terms of how it's been run, um, I think some people have felt less inclined to be so vocal about it just because they're not passionate about it anymore. Mm. Not that they're not proud to be German. I think they are. But it's just not the same as as being in a community like Bremen where you know you can feel the yeah. the love being reciprocated I read a book years ago called The German Genius by a guy called I think Peter Watson maybe okay. um, and his his kind of argument is that there's always this back and forth and it's it's a very sort of it's a very sort of old school history book right so it's it's heavy on the narrative I, <laughs> I, I was in uh, universities not that long ago and, and and I know now that like historiography these days is sort of deconstructing all of these narratives being mm. like we shouldn't adopt them but we'll we'll run with this <laughs> for the for the purpose of the interview but um his argument was that Germany's always gone through these phases of of being proud about itself but then being brought low in Europe for various reasons obviously world war 2 etc world war 1 those are easy but then he goes back in history and shows it all the time and um and and so there's always this you you occasionally move from this sense of like utmost proud at, pride at being german being like look what we've achieved we we are able to motivate as a nation much more than a lot of the countries around us in in europe and then something happens which which pulls them down so and there's a sense that um that 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 they are sort of brought very low but then coming out of that period the 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 youth of of the country sort of start thinking well you know why are we why are we so why are we so uh, negative about ourselves? We need to be proud again. And that cycle continues. I wondered whether or not you thought that sort of uh, cycle is evident in German football, um, whether or not there's that sense that, oh, you know, we, we deserve to be one of the best teams in the world. And then something like the 2018 World Cup happens and, and there's a being brought low again. Um, I think the demographic of Germany fans is so broad, it's hard to, yeah. hard to say. Uh, my... 
I think there are a lot of Germany fans who, national team fans, who I would say are fans who, in, who enjoy watching the national team. But I don't know whether there's really, okay, we'll go to the game. Are oh, they playing Peru in a friendly? Let's go. I don't know. I don't think it has the same feeling uh, as supporting another country's national team. I think there are reasons for that. Um, and I think you talked about some of them there. But I think it's also because the the nature of being a Bundesliga fan, I think it means so much more. You look at the Premier League and how television money has diluted uh, that that way of life as a fan that used to exist. And it's so hard to be a fan in the same way anymore because I don't think you get the feeling that you matter. Mm. Uh, that's certainly the feeling I get from the few Premier League fans yeah. I've spoken to. And yet in the Bundesliga, you still... I think we might be on the verge of this changing, as sad as that is, but you still see clubs listening to their fans. Frankfurt are a great example of that. There's there's a there's a unity there. Felix Thames, a colleague of mine, wrote a great piece about about the connection between their club and their fans. And they listen to each other and they talk to each other and they're engaged. And I, you just don't get that at a national team level. As for the up and down, I think Germany is now at a time where its younger generation has probably never felt more empowered to show that this is a, a wonderful country with a great language and really friendly people. And I think they have every opportunity to to be as proud as they are. And it's exciting to see that, having been there as a, as a, as a child, not consciously aware of it, but obviously talked to my parents about it and see the, the difference in, in that and see how... You only have to look at how empowered a lot of young German people are about climate change um, and issues that they know affect them to see how proud they are to say, look, yeah, we're, we're here, we're German and we're standing up for what we believe to be right. I think there's a change. I think we're approaching a generation now where that guilt is yeah. not there anymore. And I think that's so overdue because it's a country with so many wonderful things. One more question about German football. Um, and I, it's sort of moving on from, from what you're saying there about uh, about the way that clubs listen. Because uh, again, I I experienced that at Freiburg, you know, mm. a small club where you go along and, and it's an entirely different experience. And I've, I've tried articulating this to friends. Um, you go to the Premier League and it's, it's like going to the opera or the it's ballet, right? Yeah. So you go along and you see it happen and then you leave. Mm. Whereas when I was at Freiburg, it was just entirely different. You turned up, you can drink in the stands. People are milling around before the game. The players arrive in cars and, and walk through the crowds and talk mm. to the crowds as, mm. as these things are happening. After the uh, match, there's, there's, there's the ultras and the, and the team uh, have these sort of rituals where yeah. where they can pick who they thought was the man of the match. They go up into the into the crowd and sing songs with them. Um, and again, like you say, the the, um, the 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 team bus turns up outside, and you, you see the again the opposition come off, and you're right next to them. It's it, it's just an inc incredible experience. Um, so I wondered whether I don't know where I was, where I was really going with that, but. Um, that you, you you did allude to the fact that you think that that's going. You think that's that's going to be. Uh, do you think that's simply because there is this need for German football to keep up with the rest of the the rest of the top five? I think the Bundesliga is struggling with a battle between its soul and its ambition, and I think the Bundesliga is torn between what to do and what to keep. I would hope that the Bundesliga sees the value in what it has. We can't all win. 
And what is winning in the first place? If we're going to have a philosophical conversation about it, I think it's worth considering that. Mm. What is the value of success? How do you measure it? I think Germany has been extremely successful. It produces a lot of young players. It plays them. It's a developmental league. It has a connection with its fans. It cares about the people that it's giving, servicing the community for with this game. And it hasn't got out of hand financially, or at least to some extent. Mm. I think there's so much value in that. What does it want to be? It wants to be the number one league in the world. Okay, but to do that, you have to sacrifice all that makes you the number two league in the world. Mm. Uh, and, and even if you take away the rankings, there's so much value in what the game in Germany has, even on a second or a third division level, to what it provides, all the things you just talked about there. I remember the scenes last weekend when Hamburg lost and their fans literally came down and spoke to the players after a loss. I mean, they haven't won in seven. They're supposed to be going up to the first Bundesliga again, Hamburg. And their fans were speaking to the players and saying, you know, what's going on? I saw it on a number of occasions with Schalke this season. Dominico Tedesco, when he was the head coach, was going over and talking to the fans. There is a dialogue there. And to lose that and remove rules like the 50 plus one rule and allow people to come in and heavily invest and then buy anyone and then see, you know, television rights go through the roof, you will do what I think has plagued the Premier League. You will remove the importance of the man in the stand. Mm. You will enhance the importance of the television. And you will remove what makes the connection between a community and a football club so beautiful. You went there as someone, you went to Freiburg as someone who's not part of that community and you instantly felt that you were connected to it. Why on earth would you not want to retain that? Yeah. And I think that's the danger. My personal the reason that I feel like it's going to go that way is because there's no evidence to suggest that football has ever learned from its mistakes. Mm. And I feel like the Bundesliga is so desperate to catch the Premier League. I could talk about German football all day long, but... Um... <coughs> Maybe a few questions just before we close on on the more pr practical media side of things of, of actually writing a book and and, and getting a book published. Um, yeah, just interested to hear how how the book came about as as a as a more sort of uh, official document in the sense that you 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 approached a publisher and you've got a publisher to agree to publish it. How, how did that side of things go for you? <coughs> you need to just yeah yeah go for it. It's fine. Get some water. <laughs> So much, so much passion about. So much passion. <laughs> Talking too much. Mate. Do you want anything? No, no, I'm good. Thanks, mate. Oh, yeah. Mm. You need to get a tickle on your throat. Yeah, that's no, right. <laughs> right. Right. You asked me. Yeah, just about the how how you went about getting the getting a contract and. and... When I first had the idea for the book, I didn't know whether anybody would be interested in it. Um, I know. Um, Dave Hartrick from Ockley Books because we're both Brighton fans. It's a very fortunate coincidence. And I, I just spoke to him about the idea sort of roughly and we had a couple of chats and he said he was interested in the idea when I first put it forward. Um, and I think you have to get you have to get lucky at the right time and the right publisher and, and Dave has been fantastic. He's, you know, such a an accommodating person. He's always been so helpful. And I'm really, really grateful to to him for all the effort that he's made. I think you just have to you have to get a bit lucky at the timing of what you want to write about. When I first came across the idea, German football was still <clears throat> very much in the public eye. There was still a lot of focus on it, and I think he sort of gave me the freedom to to go away and to do my best with it. And and I think having the freedom to to explore all potential avenues didn't put too much restraint on me and, and allowed me to maybe come back with more material than I needed 
but it's always better to do that and then be able to slim it down. Yeah. So I'm just grateful to him. In terms of, uh, I guess, the the practicalities of it, um, how, how has it been working with the publishers? It, it must be, you go through this the, the stage of like handing him all the material and then yeah. proofs coming back and then... Um, I guess they've they've modded it up now so that it's um, so you know roughly what it's going to be like. I don't, have you got have you got hold of a physical copy yet? Or no, this uh, week? yeah, it's it's very close. I, it's such a funny thing. You you always think when you send in the next edit that it's the final one, <laughs> and I've certainly relearned the value of of patience or what it means to be patient because it's such a heavy process. And but every time you do it, even if your initial reaction is frustration. You quickly learn the value of of patience and what it is to review. Do I really want to say that? You really look at the language that you're using and you start speaking to yourself. You go a little crazy in the process because I think that's normal. But you start to say, is that really what I want to say? Are these the right words? And when you come back to it and you realize that this is what you really want to say, maybe it's not the same. Mm -hmm. Having someone else there, even if it's endless edits, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 versions of, of the same project. Every single time, it's making it better. And I think if you accept that early on, you can only really benefit from it in the end. I mean, it's a it's a tiring process. It's a long process. Don't if you want to write a book, I wouldn't say don't get in it to to expect something to to be there. I am so excited about having it in my hand, and and I know that's going to be the magical moment. Um, just to be able to know then that this is something I can finally share with with so many people who've shown so much interest and that's been really humbling it's been really nice to hear about that and I think that's that's going to be the moment mm. any plans to do another book or are you going to get this one out and then have a have a few years off just to relax <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll we'll see I think because I want this book to do not so many things but one thing really well I want to make such a big change with this book and I really believe that we need to talk more about people in the game we need to talk more about the human side of things. We need to talk about character development. We need to talk about looking after individuals because I think it's so easy to forget when you watch on television or even in the stadium sometimes that they are just human beings, footballers, managers, people in sport. And we need to have a greater understanding of that. Um, so I think I'll... I'll see where this one. I'll see where this one takes me first. I always think it's like having a baby, right? Right, but right. You go through. The, you're you're just at the sort of the point where the the doctor is about to hand it to you. Yeah, and you're still you can still remember the the gore of the of, the, of labor, right? Whereas, give it a few few weeks, and once you've got that book in your hand, I'm sure you'll you'll be feeling you'll be feeling the uh, urge again. The endorphins will come in, which make make you forget all. I that hope other. so. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. How can people get hold of your book if they want to? The pre-order link should be up this week. Um, so I know that's something that people have been asking about mm. um, the release dates and more details like that will certainly follow on the pre-order link and I'll be having that this week as well um, it will be available uh, on all the usual places mm. so um, there's nothing to worry about there mm. uh, yeah I'm, as soon as it's out you'll definitely know I'll be the first person to say so yeah I just all I can say is you know it's it's not long now <laughs> and this the book is called Mensch correct uh, Beyond the Cones? Beyond no. the Cones. Beyond the Cones, yeah, yeah. good. Yeah, that was, that. Uh, actually, I have to say, that's my brother. We uh, we had a good conversation and uh, he said, I was looking for a, a, a second line. Um, Mensch is, is German for, for person, human being. and So obviously got other connotations as well. Um, it's, also, it, it's also a word that's used in frustration. Sometimes in German we say, ah, Mensch, you know, in, not in anger, but in, in frustration. So it's got a, a great multi faceted title um but i needed something else 
And then my brother and I were talking about it and he said, what about, you know, because it's not just about the training, what about beyond the cones? And so really, I, I can't take credit for that part, but <laughs> I'm grateful to him. And so what's the best way for people to follow you so they can see the news? Um, JohnBlog66 on Twitter. Um, I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, same same name, my, my full name on, on Facebook, whatever your preferred social media platform is. But I'm most active on Twitter, so if that's your bag, then mm. that's and where that's the information John will be. John without an H. Correct. I say as a John without an H. John without an H, <laughs> uh, because my real name is Jonathan. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Well, John, thanks so much for, for talking to me. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie, Matt Murphy and Jonathan Harding. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. We'll be back next week with another interesting guest from the football media. But until then, have a good week. Goodbye. Goodbye.